Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. And hello and proper salutations for whatever time of day you might be listening to this in the Temple Beth Am podcast. Um, if you notice that uh, Elon Spar and I are a little bit lacking our normal pep and happiness, you'll have to forgive us. But um, pitchers and catchers are only four and a half months away, so uh, we'll, get, we'll get back into it soon. Um, okay, so we ended two weeks ago because uh, Leonard talked the class last week on a really interesting set of verses that we know liturgically, but it's, it's always interesting for me, even to this day, when I come across in just my natural study of the tradition, either in a Midrash or a Talmud, right? I don't, I don't know the canon by heart. Um, and I come across something that I know from a different context, either from being an active Jew in life or having heard in a lecture somewhere, but actually now studying it within the text, it's always very exciting. And that's where we are in Parshat Ve'era. Those, I just need a tissue one second. Uh, hold on everyone. We are uh, at the place in Parshat Ve'era where we get the, the notion, whether it's actually originates here or it's ascribed to it ex post facto, um, the, this kind of the numerology of the number four when it comes to the Pesach Seder, because we're at the verse that discusses, or the verses that discuss the four traditional languages of redemption with which God promised to bring the Israelites out of bondage, out of slavery, okay? So, that means that we're on chapter six of the book of Shemot, and um, we're on verse uh, verse six. Um, thanks, Hector. Oh, hello. Um, yeah, that, that door has to be really schlepped. All right, just to go back a verse to get us some momentum, in verse five, I also have heard at Nakat B'nai Israel the groans of the children of Israel, Asher Mitzrayim, Mavidim Otam, the Asher, is an interesting asher because if you translate it literally, the meaning would get lost. It's not the groans of the children of Israel that the Egyptians were oppressing them, but kind of as a result of which, or as a result of, or because of the fact that Egypt was ma'avidimotam, was putting them to harsh work. Laha'avid is the he feel, the causative of oved, oved is to work, laha'avid is to force to work or cause to work. Va'ezkor et briti, I remembered um, my covenant, and we spent a lot of time talking about which covenant this is referring to, and Rashi connects us to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, some of them directly, some of them indirectly, in terms of the pledges back in the book of Genesis, that um, God will remember the descendants of the ancestors even when they're in bondage. And now our verse, Lachain, and I think we read this verse last week, last time, so I'm just going to read it quickly and then we'll slow it down. Lachain, therefore, and more livnei Israel. Say to the children of Israel, Ani Adonai, I am yud heh I am God's name. Um, remembering, we should remember some of the conversations we had at the burning bush, the difference between Adonai and Elohim, and God saying at the beginning of this parsha that I did not reveal myself as Adonai um, <coughs> yet. They've, only, they've known me only as El Shaddai. I will take them out. That's number one. From underneath the burdens, the challenges of the, uh, um, or the sufferings of Egypt. Number two, I will save them from their uh, bondage. 
וגאלתי אתכם, and I will, uh, I said them, but I mean you, because he's speaking kind of, he's telling Moshe what Moshe should say to the Israelites in God's name. I will redeem you, Bizroa Natiwa, that's, that's three, with an outstretched arm, Uvishvatim Dolim, and with great judgments, and if we just continue the next verse, Vilakachti Echem Lilaam, and I will take you to be my people. Those are four active verbs that discuss what God is going to do to get the Israelites out of Egypt. Of course, the reason why we think that some of this, um, the numerology of four connected with these verses ex post facto is that it's convenient that the counting of four verses ends there when there are other verbs. And I will be to you as a God. That's also a verb that expresses what God is going to do for the Jewish people. And then if you go to the beginning of the next verse, which are not at yet, and I will bring you to the land of Israel. So if in this entire section, there were only four verbs that God uses to describe the process of redemption, then we could say, ah, this is where the rabbis actually learned it from. The fact that there are four verbs highlighted amongst five or six to suggest at some point in the organic natural development of Jewish practice, when the Seder came to be, the number four became a powerful number. And then ex post facto, the rabbi says, oh, what, what can we link this to? I know. There are those verses in the book of in the book of Shmuel Parshat Ve'era, and yeah, I know there are five or there are six verbs, but we'll just choose four of them. Okay, I'm being a little bit flippant, but the process was probably something like that, right? It's it's not as obvious in the text to say, of course, the number four jumps out from this from this verse. Um, it seems more like a something hung on after the fact. Okay, that's kind of where we were. I don't think we read any of the Rashi's um, on these verses. Let me pause and see if there are questions or comments before we go forward. Marshall, uh, let's uh, move the microphone around uh, so that I keep forgetting to ask for two extras, not just one. It's a relay system. <laughs> there might be, but I, I can't do it instantly. I'm sorry. Okay, Marshall. Always knowing that translations are interpretations, I find it interesting that in this verse, Unculus translates the last phrase, Ubishvatim Gedolim, as Udinin Ravravin, here translated as acts of great judgments. And in the contemporary Torah, JPS, from 2006, they translate that as extraordinary chastisements. Yeah, I, I remember the English of extraordinary chastisements, and I remember the first time I came across it, I, I said, okay, now turn that into English, <laughs> right? It's hard to translate uh, ancient words into modern words that don't sound too colloquial and that retain some of the, I don't know, the gravitas of, of what we ascribe to ancient language, but we want to write it in a way that normative speakers of English will understand it. Yeah. Yes, Barry, let's move the mic. I know it's clumsy, but we got to get the mic. We got to. Sorry. He Hold on, Hector. While we're listening, Hector, can you just make a note that next time we need two other mics besides mine? Total, total three. Thank you. Thanks. Right. So Thanks, just on, on that chastisement, whoever did that translation, translation is always midrash. It's somebody's midrash. And it's a, they're looking forward. The judgments, mishpatim, is not necessarily good or bad. Mishpatim is mishpatim. Um, the, the looking ahead, okay, it's, it's a chastisement, but it's not necessarily so. 
Yeah, in this case, it's the it's the harsh judgments that God is going to do on Egypt. But we don't know that. It just says mishpatim. Just it's it, it, we don't know what it is yet. Uh, okay, uh, it's a possibility. I, we know because we know the story. We're saying just if you're looking at the words that what God is the process by which God is going to get the Israelites out will will involve some kind of great judgment, but we're not sure exactly what the context is. Is that what you're saying, Barry? Yeah. We don't know yet. Yeah, that's true. Right. We have to remember, particularly when we're reading the way we read, <clears throat> to pretend that we don't know how the story is going to go. Yes. That opens up possibilities in the text, which is sometimes the rabbis, Dafka, didn't do that, and they read verses in Exodus through the prism of verses in Deuteronomy, and sometimes they, Dafka, do it. Let's pretend we don't know where this is going to go. Therefore, I'm not beholden to the narrative as it's unfolding. I can simply... Um, I can simply imagine what may have been possible in this text before future verses resolved it in a different way. <laughs> With the screen behind me, I'm seeing myself twice. Hello, self. Oh, but I'm seeing, oh, it's reverse. I have my left hand up and I have my right hand up. This is just like a yeah. house of mirrors. That's your, that's your left hand. I, I, I support that. Yeah. Left hand. Okay. This is very good. Um, okay, um, does anyone have a note as to whether or not we read the Rashi's on five? I know we didn't read six, but did anyone know if we read the verse Rashi on five two weeks ago? I have that we're on number seven of the regular chapter. Okay, so then I think we read the Rashi on five, so let's now read the Rashi on verse six. We kind of built up to this as, um, as Rashi spent several verses taking us back into... Um, into Breshit, into Genesis, to discuss this notion that what's happening in this verse is a is, is a resolution of promises that were offered to our ancestors. I think all of the commentary of Rashi in verses 4 and 5 is really setting up our way, our understanding the lachain in verse 6. Lachain means therefore. In order for there, there to be a therefore, there has to be an antecedent of an idea which is causing or giving reason to what's happening next. So without the, the Lachain begs us understanding, well, well, what is it that preceded this such that we're now at a, and therefore, and Rashi has built us up. So the therefore has to do, as we'll see in explicitly in a second, with God's having fulfilled age old promises. Um, okay, Sue, do you wanna read the, the Rashi and Lachain? We could get the microphone over to Sue. Um, because, um, Rebecca's not here. What Rebecca had been doing was pulling up this class on her phone and then pointing the camera to whoever in the room is talking. Does anybody want to do that for today? Just pull up, pull up Zoom on your, pull up this class on your phone, join, don't add volume, and then just point it so that the people on Zoom can hear who can see who's speaking. That would be great. Like, otherwise, it's too clunky for me to turn my computer around. Should I wait? Or? No, no, you don't have to wait. Okay. Because you can be heard, but it'll be easier if someone can just point the camera. Okay, Lachen. Alpi Otahashvua. According to the the swearing. The oath. The oath or the or, or the promise. So mm -hmm. uh, th this this comment of Rashi makes more sense if we just immediately study the previous Rashis. But to remind us, last two weeks ago, we 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 talked about the promises that through the shvuot, but he's saying it as singular here, the oaths that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that there's going to be a future time where you're going to be enslaved by the Egyptians, and I will 
and I will redeem you. And since, this is what lachain means, thank you, Joel. Um, since I am a God who want to be believable, I want to be ne'eman, and I indeed made these um, promises, therefore, I want you to say this to the children of Israel, I'll pee based on, on so that I can complete and resolve the oath that I had made earlier to your ancestors. Okay, therefore what? Well, we're trying to set up a time. You're going to sit right there? <laughs> you have to go that close. You could do it from Goodness here, Joe. Goodness gracious. <laughs> they could, you could see her, her <laughs> nose hairs. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready for your close-up? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, therefore, emor livne Yisrael avi ani Adonai. Therefore, go to the children of Israel. Say to them, Emor. Say to them, Emor. Say to them that I am God. I now, am the Lord. Remember that when God, when Rashi spoke a few verses ago about the distinction between Adonai and El Shaddai, Adonai is God's most intimate, the yud most trustworthy, most you can really rely on me name. El Shaddai is also a name of God, but but I had God had not fully made God's self known as Adonai to them yet, but now he's doing it. And what does Adonai mean in this context? Ha. The Lord. Ha. I keep reading. Oh. Ha ne'eman be'havtach be'iftach be'havtachti be'havtachati. Havtachati. Havtachati. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, the, the believe, the one to believe in, no. Correct, yeah, yes. the, the, the believable, Ne'eman, to be amened, yeah. And the one who promises. But connect it with the B. I am believable. I'm believable, I, and I am the promisable. I'm right. in, pro, in a promise with you. Right, I can be trusted. And I, so I am Adonai, in what, I'm Adonai Israel, I'm not just El Shaddai, I'm not just Elohim, I am Adonai, you can trust me in this, in what way am Adonai? That I am Ne'eman, I am, Believable, trustable, um, reliable, be, be? with respect to Avtachati, my promise. Right? And remember, we'll Rashi is imagining, I guess that which we should imagine based on trying to create a full four-dimensional reality from the text, that the Israelites enslaved in Egypt have some inherited, passed down memory of their ancestors, right? Can we prove it? No. Do we like of course we can't even Prove Exodus, right? Can we, do we know that the average Israelite slave knew Jacob's name, knew the story of Isaac's uh, stealing the birthright and the blessing, know, knew about the, the breed Bena Batarim of Abraham? No, but the internal logic is that this is a people that's being redeemed, that's connected to the ancestors that brought them down to Egypt, which means they know the stories, right? And if they know the stories, they know that God got very close to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know that God made some promises, and they know that right now they're enslaved. And so they're probably thinking, where are you, God? I know Brashit. I know that you promised to redeem us. Why, have, why hast thou forsaken us, to borrow from a New, New Testament language, right? And so God is now coming and saying, therefore, since I now have remembered all these promises, say the Israelites, all your understanding of me, Israelites, I am actually Adonai. I'm actually the trustworthy God that you heard about from the stories of your ancestors. Joel. Were you intending on looking at Bamidbar 2012? That's what my footnote says. Uh, I can pull Rashi, it up. Rashi's talking about Lachen in the same Hold on. context. 
I'll bring you. Thank you. Uh, one second. The Midbar 2012. That's on the screen, right? Okay, yeah. So um, let's take a look at this verse. I, uh, maybe the connection will make itself clear. God said to Moses and Aaron, Ya'an lo hamantimbi, because you did not believe in me, to help make me more holy in the sight of the Israelites. That must be the kind of word. Therefore, therefore, you are not going to be the ones to bring this congregation um, forward. So there's a lachain. Is there is there a footnote that that builds it out a bit? Yeah, Rashi talks about how lachain is referring to promises. That's the footnote on our verse in your version of Rashi. Trying, I'm trying to figure out what that footnote is is adding. No, go if you go to the Rashi of this verse. He he talks more specifically about what. Oh, in this volume, you mean? No, no. Click on the Rashi from Safari, yeah? On verse 20? Yeah. On verse 12? 12. Yeah. Chapter 20, no? 20 yeah. 12, you yeah. said? Just so you know that what you put up on the screen is not showing up on our screens, those of us at home. Yeah, it's Where's behind the... you, but there isn't a share screen. Oh, right, right, right. Sorry, 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 sorry. Sorry, okay. Thank you, Barbara. You're welcome. God, this technological world is complicated. Uh, <laughs> Rashi doesn't have a comment. I don't see a lachin on yeah, that. But, uh... I mean, yeah, Rashi does comment on that. When Rashi says on the lachin lotaviu, if we open it up so we watch it in Hebrew, bishvua. Um, um, in an oath, kamo, similar to levet eli. Uh, therefore, I have been sworn to the house of Eli in the book of Shmuel. Nishba bekfitza, shelo yarbu betfila alkach. He swore quickly, um, so they would not extend their tefillah on it. But aside from the word, the fact that lachain suggests a, a fulfillment of something, I'm not sure what the but the, if, there, if there's a deeper connection to these two verses. He also gives another reference of uh, Rashi to Ezekiel 16, 8. Yeah, I mean, there. I suppose the footnotes are trying, like, let me go back. We, we who know Hebrew rather well know that the word lachain means therefore. I suppose this is also the, the, the modern commentators, modern editors who are commenting on Rashi helping us understand that this is how the notion of lachain got built, that there's a there's ascension of a, not a quid pro quo, but a fulfillment of something. And that's why that's why I think all the previous verses, all the comments that Rashi was making was building up to his understanding of this word lachain. Okay, um, good. We're halfway through this Rashi. A little bit more, Sue. Uh, which means I'll bring you out. I, I brought, I'll, I will bring you out. But the Vavaibuch. Um Ki Hen if Tahtiv. Because I um promised I, I promised that. But isn't that a to him? I prom Ki Khen if Tahtiv, what's the Tiv? 
Right. I I promised him. I promised I promised it to him, or I promised it. Correct. Who's the him? Oh, Abraham. Abraham, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it up. <laughs> correct. So we're gonna pull up that um, that verse. Uh, second. Forget to let, don't forget to let us see it. Hector, is there a way you can ask them to thank you? Um, oh, one second. It's ringing and buzzing. People are screaming. It's very loud today. It's loud today. <laughs> sort of nice to hear the noise of children. Up to a point. <laughs> Up to a point. <laughs> Sorry, I got the verse. Hold on, hold on. I, like I should have had to set up a frame. Minion, you know, uh, excuses, excuses, but Minion went late today, so no chance to set this up in advance. Okay, so as Barry appointed us to, this is a direct reference to the one of the places where this whole episode of God promising to the ancestors that we were going to be redeemed at some point. Sha. Um, in the Brit Ben Abitarim, in the covenant between the pieces, uh, where at some point God says, right, so in verse 13, Vayomer Avram, God said to Avram, he's still Avram at the time of Avraham, you should verily know, at some point you're going to be a stranger in this land, Ba'aretz Lolahem. In, sorry, your, your offspring is going to be a stranger in a land that's not theirs, and they will oppress you. It doesn't mention Pharaoh, but they'll oppress you. They will afflict you. 400 years, we discussed this two weeks ago. That, that number is played within the Seder. And the nation that will oppress you, I will judge them, I will chastise them. And afterwards, they, meaning your offspring, will leave with a great will. So back to what we've got here, when Rashi says that the verse, the Hotse and I will take you out, he because that's exactly what I promised, that you guys will leave. And now Rashi quotes that verse. But, well, okay. before I say that, um, yeah. in 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 our book, the I got all stumbled up on that Hitachtiv. Yeah. It's got I've got that Tiv at the end in the in this one. But in ours, it just says Iktahti, which would have saved us all kinds of <laughs> monkeying around. It says Kain Iktahti, which makes more sense. Yeah. I promise. I promised. Hivtahtiv can either mean I promised it or I promised him. Yeah. I'm uh, just saying. I'm just saying. In one book, it's like this. In the other book, it's yeah. I mean, I mean, we've talked about this many times. Think about how miraculous it is that this commentary of Rashi passed down by hand over thousands of years is only different by the absence or the presence of a vav every 2,000 <laughs> words, right? Like, it's, it's pretty spectacular yeah. that it's, it's actually that consistent, right? Just just read the next line, then we'll hear from Be'er, Be'achrechein. Be'achrechein yotzer, yotzer, yetzu. Ooh, I'm going to go back to this one. Be'achrechein yetzu be'rechush gadol. And after, after, afterward, um, 
it will all come out with a big, a, with a big, a big reward. Right. A they, big they, property. They will emerge from Egypt, with, or with from whoever's going to press them with great stuff. Right. So, so, therefore, promise them, say to them that I'm I'm trustworthy. My promise, and I will indeed redeem them as I said I would. Barry, microphone. <laughs> Joel, you can sit here. <laughs> you, you, you can sit over there. You can see. Okay. You're going to get your steps in, Joel. Yeah. A, a, a question on sequence. Uh, 400 years previously, give or take, uh, God tells Abraham that this is all going to happen and, and that God will do this redemption thing. Um, comes the time now. Is it the groaning that brings God's promise back or is God God's promise coming back and and now that God's back here's the groaning and response yeah I, I I I think that it's not the groaning that initiated this sequence but God's recall of his yiskor of his promise yeah we I remember discussing this at great length in the sukkah that one of the unsolvable conundrums and it's really theologically important about this section is is this a god who is mostly interested if we could anthropomorphize god in um responding to the real pain of human beings or is this a god who doesn't want to wants to save face because it's now all of a sudden remembered oh i made a promise i should fulfill it now in the end the israelites go free but this is the god to whom we're wedded Right? And, and how, we, how you read these verses impacts whether the emphasis is God was distracted elsewhere, all of a sudden heard the cries and said, oh my goodness, they are suffering. That's right, and I promise to redeem them. We, so we, the, we, the, we, empath we, the empathic God is awakened. Or is this a God who is, you know, actually was hearing it the whole time, um, but then all of a sudden, remembered num num from a mathematical perspective that a promise was made, it's time to fulfill it. And the text leaves both possibilities open. We, we know clearly from our history that God does not necessarily respond to our crying. Yeah, yeah. And so the question is, which, which God does the Torah, does the Bible want to present here, right? The Bible is a sermon. The Torah is a, is, if you're not a fundamentalist, the Torah is not merely telling us that which happened. The Torah is ancient Israel's, in partnership with God's, sermon on reality and on who God is and what the world is, what we can expect. So how the Torah tells the story of God is the basis for our conception of God thousands of years later, right? And this leaves open several different possible ways of reading it. Rosemary, let's get the microphone. Uh, I see it in a way to the two ways, because um, while crying, calling God, I think, or complaining, it helps. I had this experience looking at Torah in certain time when, like, if we go to Eliyahu, when the, uh, the child has died, the mother is crying all the time and saying, you gave this child to me, now you give it back to me, you took it. So as much as she yells, and then finally Eliyahu goes and gives back the son. Right. So I always ask myself, maybe we don't cry enough. So 
uh, that's why we don't have it. Um, the second thing that I see, it's, uh, uh, it's um, if, I don't know 100% from time-wise, but if we take people leave like at that time, 50 years, uh, 50 times seven will be 350. And they were like 400 years in slaves and being slaves, maybe they were living longer. So can we say this was the punishment of um, Jacob's sons that in after the flood, God said seven generations will pay back. Mm. And that I don't like either, <laughs> but anyway, maybe that's related to the, not that God forgot it, it's not possibly forgot, but he was waiting the, the seven, yeah. seven uh, generations. On the first comment, Rosemary, right? What's the what's that notion? The studies that that uh, that babies who are not responded to when they cry will stop crying at some point, mm -hmm. right? That that crying is an indication that the babies trust that by wailing they will get taken care of, right? Mm -hmm. So at some point you'll stop you'll stop entreating if you feel like it's not being responded to. It's actually amazing that the Jewish people still cry out to God, uh, though, as Barry reminded us, there have been many, many dark moments where it didn't help that much. Right? Um, and of course, this is really complex and important theology. It goes down, goes down to the basic question is, what do we, what do we think is happening when we pray? Right? Are, we, are we praying to get something accomplished? Are we praying to get a need? Are we praying to a, a God who listens, who cares, who intervenes? Or is prayer more of a matrix than an arithmetic conversation where I ask for something and I get it back? Um, and all and, and these texts are like the primordial soup from which these ideas emerge, right? So we are rabbinic Jews, inheriting rabbinic interpretations of the text and rabbinic theologies. But they 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 had this material. What what are we supposed to learn about our God from this, right? And what are we supposed to learn about what it means to pray? And you can imagine that if the rabbis wanted to experience and teach a theology that suggests that. Um, crying out to God is an effective way of doing prayer, they would want to read into this story. That's exactly what happened here. The Israelites were enslaved, but it, when they started to daven and those groans rose up to the heavens, that's when God responded, right? That's an intentional way of reading the verses, but it's not the only way of reading the verses. Okay, we have one more comment on this verse. Uh, when Sue reads this, uh, your, your job, as it almost always is in Rashi, is not just to understand the three words of Rashi's comment, but what is Rashi's question to which these three words are an answer. Hold on a second. I'm just seeing now that there are hands up, and I didn't see it before. Um, sorry. Uh, Joanna and then Barbara, I apologize for that. I just wanted to suggest that um, I think there's a possible read here that um, the cry is a little bit of a Nachshon Ben Amidav Ben Aminadav moment, in that um, perhaps they weren't ready to leave yet. You know, there's there's been lots of studies on people who suffer all sorts of horrible things, and it's not quite as easy to get them out of that situation as one might think, because they have become so used to it that that's all they know how to do. And that the cry perhaps indicated to God that they were ready for something else, that this was um, a freedom that had to be granted in stages, which I think we're going to see in a few verses when we read that they, you know, lo shamu Moshe. Is it that they didn't listen to Moshe out of choice or that 
They couldn't. They couldn't yet listen. They weren't yet ready, able to listen to Moshe. So I'm wondering if there's, you know, a possible read to go along those lines that, you know, God was waiting for the moments when they would be ready for the various stages of redemption. Beautiful, Joanna. For those who may not know the reverence, can you just flesh out the Nachshon Ben Aminadav reference? So there's a very, very famous midrash at the crossing of the sea that um, the Israelites got to the sea and the water was rising and it rose up to their knees and the water did impart and it rose and it rose and it rose and they were standing there doing nothing. And the water was up to their noses and Nachshon ben Aminadav, I forget, he was the leader of one of the Shvatim, I forget which one, he jumps into the sea. And because he took that initial action, God then responded. So in the same way, God was waiting for some sign of readiness from B'nai Yisrael that they were ready. And the fact that they were now crying about it, that they now felt something about their slavery and a cry seems to be, to me, and understand it, you know, you cry because you wish for something to be different. So the fact that they had gotten to that stage now where they were ready to acknowledge they wanted something to be different, God was then therefore ready to move also. Yeah, the Nachshon Midrash is kind of the inverse of the classic parable of the person who dies in a flood and says, where were you, God? And I sent, I sent the car, I sent the boat, I sent the helicopter, right? So that, that parable is you have to be, you have to take an active role in your being saved. And the rabbinic notion 2000 years earlier is you actually have to initiate it, right? Not just you have to be, you have to be responsive when offered to you, you've got to take an initiating role if God, if you're going to expect God to be in your life, right? Um, great. Thank you for that, Joanna. Uh, Barbara? Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment to add on to uh, what Rosemary said. You know, they, we have this concept in the Bible of years that I, th I personally believe that it's a very different concept of what a year is to us now. I, I don't know how they based years on in those days. We base it on the turning of the earth for 365 plus days. And I, I've always felt like when I mean, they say somebody lived 900 years, I don't believe it. I, I think that maybe a quarter of a year or something like that is what what they thought was a full year. And so 400 years, sometimes I wonder the same thing here. Maybe they were only there for 100 or so years or 200 years, not 400 years. But yeah, uh, certainly the ages in the book of Rashid seem to be expanded mythical numbers, right? I, I don't think, and then again, fundamentalism might. I don't think that we're supposed to be reading that and imagining that's, that, the, that the person character Noah saw 600 winters in his life, right? The question, at some point though, Barbara, it seems that the notion of biblical time starts to match up with what we consider to be time. So the question is, do we, do we trust the, the amount of time that, you know, the, book, the books of, uh, of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy say it took us to travel through the, the desert? Do we trust those 40 years or are we still skeptical of the number of years because the Genesis numbers are so skeptical, are, are so worthy of skepticism? It's mostly the Genesis conception of years which are hardest to make sense of. Although well, Barbara, I, I'm holding out for 600 years for you, just so you know. I, 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 I'm looking, I'd like 16 at least. <laughs> but what, one or two sessions ago, we did talk about it 
to some degree, because I, I commented on a bit that we were there supposedly for 400 years, and you said many Bible people feel that it was less, and you mentioned it sometimes, and, and maybe that has to do with what I feel, that those people didn't feel that it was 400 years like what we have today in a, a lesser number of years. So some of that is in, in internal conflict in the math of the tradition. So in, when God is anticipating Egyptian slavery in the scene with Abraham of the brief bin Tarim, there's the 400 year notion. But if you track internal to the math of the end of the book of Genesis, and the book of Exodus, how long people lived and then whose children were whose children, and, and, and then you get all the way down to Moses, that, that doesn't add up to 400. So that's why there's that exception in the Haggadah that, um, uh, that you know, not, not everyone pays a lot of attention to and other places in rabbinic literature that tries to either you know, square that circle and resolve how it can be both a 400 number and a 200 year number. And of course, we don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it's because our own internal math does not add up if you compare each place where it's referenced in the tradition. Uh, Rick, and then Stevie. Hi. Um, along the lines of um, whether, uh, I'll just show you. In, in verse 7, I, I, we're on 6 and 7 and 8 because of the verbs, right? It's, it's a, we're, we're not at 7 yet, but in 7, yeah. <laughs> there's, I will be God, and then, Vidatem, they will. You will know that I am God. So, um, kind of along the lines of, well, they're they're slaves and and they're not really doing anything. And then all of a sudden they realize that they want to change it. Um, that that they know that there's a God there that can help them. Um, th those two phrases um, seem to be adding to this. I I'm not sure. Yeah, those two phrases, as you as a trepper would know, are separated by an enachta. So in the end of the, um, of the in, in halfway through verse 7, which we'll read closely in a second, you get to a pausal um, sound, I will be for you as a god, pause. And, and then the next half concept is, and you shall know. It's not just that you shall know that I am God, but you shall know that I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right, so um, and and so that that etnachta creates a, a visual and musical fulcrum um, separating those two ideas. But we'll, we'll... yeah, I, I was keying on the revia though that you should know that in in the Torah there, there's there's lots of uh, play on the on that verb. What what, what do I know? Uh, Cain didn't know that he was Abel's uh, brother, that, that he was his keeper, and 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 uh, I, I just thought that was. Yeah. That there was a there was a point b before we knew and now you're gonna know so that that changed there all right so let's know. see how that feels when we um get to that verse itself uh, i was just told by someone that i wasn't loud enough on the zoom can you hear me better now yeah a little bit yeah how about now yes uh -huh. okay i also don't want to blow the eardrums of the people in the room or across la cienega that was pretty uh, sexy stevie <laughs> Yeah, um, just to respond to uh, Barbara's uh, question, that there's a lot of uh, sort of discrepancies of scale or of age in the Bible. And one thing that sometimes uh, 
source critics will try to sort of line up are these different issues. So in one, you know, biblical source text, arguably Abraham is in his 20s or 30s when he starts his adventures or, or even younger. And then, in, you know, another text, he's, he's in his 90s. Um, the, you know, the number of Israelites who are, you know, in the Exodus, right, or, you know, in the desert, right? Is it like one crowd of people that you could sort of speak to, or is it hundreds of thousands of people, right? The traditional chronology counts the 400 years beginning with the the birth of Isaac, but it seems that if you separate biblical sources, the slavery either lasted just like three generations, because Moses is a great, great grandchild, right? Um, or is it uh you know, centuries. It like, um, and yeah, there's just a lot of internal inconsistency that you have to sort of square a circle one way or another. Thanks, TD. Okay. Um, now, Sue, yeah. same, same challenge. Read the three words, and Sue's challenge and all of our challenges is not just to understand what these three Hebrew words mean in English, but what is the question to which they are an answer? Okay. Sivlot Mitzrayim. Torah, Torah, Masa, Mitzrayim. Okay. So uh, remind us what the words in the verse the, actually mean. The sufferings See, of, of Egypt. The sufferings of Egypt, okay? And so Rashi says, what, what, do, what does that mean? That means Torah, Masa, Mitzrayim. Torah, Masa, Mitzrayim. Well, this translation says the trouble of the burden of Egypt. The tr I don't know what he added. The trouble, Torah, Masa, yeah, Mitzrayim. Torah means trouble or like, burden. Masa is from the root yes, nasa, which means which means so many things. It can mean to raise up. It can mean to offer a blessing, mm -hmm. like Yisad and I um, It can mean census, right? Naso at Rosh Pnei Israel. But it can also mean something which is carried as a burden. So Torah Masa is almost like a tautology. The burden of the burden, or the 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 the, the burden of of the heaviness of of of, of Egypt. Um, so, um, my question to you is, what, what, what is Rashi's problem in the verse, or what's his question in the verse to which this is an illuminating answer? My version doesn't even have Torah. Mine says, Ol Moshe Mitzrayim. That must be a commentary on the Rashi, not the Rashi itself. No, it's in the Rashi paragraph. It says, Sovlot Mitzrayim, Ol Masha Mitzrayim. Oh, Okay. So, so I suppose that in some of the versions of Rashi, the word Torah, which means bother or burden, was trans was um, transposed or switched with ol. Ol means yoke, right? The y o k e, the the yoke of the burdens of Egypt. Okay. Still, the question stands: What's why is Rashi saying it? Assuming Rashi thinks that we know what the word Mitzraya means, and we do, and we know what the word Sivlot means, sufferings of, what does he have to explicate, Joel? Is is he trying to disabuse us of? Possibly reading it as the sufferings of the Egyptian. Very good, right? Sivlot Mitzrayim, right? So in 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 smichut, the, it, something of something else can often mean two different things. So the the sufferings of Egypt could be that the they suf were suffering because right, they were there. The suffering of the Egyptians, or the sufferings you have to interp interpolate this that were imposed upon us by the Egyptians. Now. Did we really think that this verse meant anything other oh, than God's kind of rescuing us from 
Egyptians suffering that they put on us? No, but since the phrase itself is ambiguous, right? The sufferings of, you know, uh, uh, the sufferings of, of the sufferings of Egypt could mean both. So he says, ah, no, it's not the sufferings that they well, experience, and they're going to experience suffering, but rather the burden of the sufferings that the Egyptians placed on us. In, Sue? In that case, I'm not sure that Torah Masa Mitzrayim is so illuminating. It sounds like it, it could be misinterpreted in the same way, to the same degree. It still doesn't, that, that's, that doesn't put it on us. Interesting. Right, so the, the Gur Aryeh, who is the Maharal of Prague, uh, his, his super commentary in Rashi, what he adds in Torah Masamitraim is Ha'ol, there's that word, Renee, the, the yoke, Ha'kaved, the heavy one, Asher Mitraim, that, that which Egypt, Matilim Alehem, had placed upon them. So I guess the Gur Aryeh is saying to Rashi, you tried to disabuse us of that notion, but you didn't get all the way there, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you get yeah. to what you wanted to say in the first place. Good. Anything else on uh, Marshall? Yeah, let's get Marshall the microphone. Yeah, going back to the word Torah again, I'm reminded of the concept of Tircha de Tzibura. Yeah. Placing a burden on, on the community itself. I only know it from the context of, uh, we don't wanna to spend too much time rolling the Sefer Torah. And in effect, the, uh, the Egyptians have placed a, a Torah upon the people by delaying the time of the redemption. Yeah. Tirchad Tzibura is used a lot in discussing what are the ethics involved in managing the different needs of people at prayer, right? So um, if, you wait till every, if you wait till everyone finishes their quiet Amidah before you're starting the repetition, that's respectful to the slowest davener. But is it a Tircha to the average davener? Because maybe it should be, you should go by the bell curve, right? So like in our daily minion, we don't start the repetition, the Amidah, until our Gabbai, Michael, finishes his silent Amidah out of, out of Kavod for him, and he's a slow davener. But he's not the slowest davener necessarily in the room. So sometimes we say, you, you know, you heard me say it, if you're still davening your Amidah, please continue at your own pace, right? And the reason I do that is because, so as not to be an, a Tircha de Tzibor, to add yet more burden to the congregation, we move things along a little bit. And yes, that's also a question of why you're supposed to, um, why you're supposed to have the Torah rolled in advance. Uh, okay, good. Any other questions on this verse? Rabbi. Yes, Rick. Does the Onkelis help with the end? Uh, I see Polchan Mitzrayim instead of Sivlot. I, I don't know what Polchan means. Polchan is the Aramaic for Avodah, and it's, it's Polchan in Aramaic is as double entendre-ish as it is in Hebrew, because Avodah means work that you must do and worship. Right. Also in um, in Aramaic, pulchan means can mean both worship and work. So it's just as ambiguous. Okay. Um, oh, pulchan is used in Hebrew also. Say that again, Matt. As a pulchan is also used in Hebrew, like it means sort of a ritual. Correct. But by, by the time Hebrew got modernized, half of the potential meaning of pulchan got lost. Right. Avodah. It's interesting, right? In modern Hebrew, avodah only means work, labor. I don't think in modern non-liturgical right. Hebrew, avodah means worship, and pulchan only means worship. But right. originally, they were Hebrew and Aramaic words that both meant both. That's exactly right, Matt. Um, dochak uh, means like um, stress of, right? So sometimes rabbis will offer a lenient ruling, bishat hadchak. 
in a very stressful time, in a, in a time of, of, of emergency. So Unculus adds in, yeah, he adds in a word, uh, the, the burden, the stress of the, of the labor imposed upon the Egyptians. So the, uh, Unculus is still kind of ambiguous in the sense that it could refer to the Egyptians suffering themselves, but he almost adds in a word as if he anticipates Rashi, because Rashi puts in two words, or you could say maybe Rashi is influenced by Unculus, because Rashi says, has one word, Sivlot, and he turns it into Torah Masa, two words, the burden of the burden, and Unculus also took one word, Mitzvot, a Sivlot, and turned it into Dechok Palchan, the, the, the stress and anxiety of the labor of the Egyptians. Good. Okay. Let's go to verse uh, seven that we're on. Who have we not heard from today? Uh, Rebecca Friedman, do you want to read um, verse seven? Okay. Velakachti etchem li la'am vahayiti lachem le'lohim vidatem ki ani adonai lohechem and I will take you to me, to myself, for a people, as a people, as a nation. And I will be to you uh, a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, uh, who brought you from under the burdens of, of Egypt. Good. And so again, we have this phrase, Sivlot Mitzrayim, exactly as it had in the previous verse. Uncleus translates it exactly the same way. First, in the middle of verse six, it's Dechok Palchan Mitzrae. And um, I guess it's one slight change because Mitzrae means the Egyptians. So he's reading, he's reading the Mitzrayim in the previous verse as the Egyptians. And at the end of this verse, Dechok Palchan Mitzrayim, the stress of the work of Egypt. Uh, doesn't really change the meaning that much, but um, he, for some reason he chooses to translate them slightly differently. Um, okay, so what do people make on this verse? And any questions you have on this verse? Anything that jumps out? The only thing I'll, I'll launch you with is a, a wonderful translation, Rebecca. Everyone notice that the word Hamotzi, you, first of all, you know that word, the Hamotzi, right? Mm -hmm. is the one who brings forth, right? Yatsa, to leave. Lehotzi, as the he feel, to make something leave. Hamotzi lecha, mina aretz, who makes the bread come from the ground. Of course, we can spend a whole class on that. That's not what God does at all. God, I don't, I don't know the last time you dug in dirt and you found bread, right? But uh, we are partners with God in turning the wheat into the bread. Um, it's a present tense word in this verse. Now we've discussed many times tenses mean something different in biblical Hebrew than they do to us. But it's interesting that in the middle of this this uh, verse that that is filled with vav ha'ipuchs about things that are going to happen in the future, I will take it to be my people. I will be your God. You will know that I am Adonai your God, who brings, who who takes out. He turns it into a present tense. It could have been ha uh, who brought you out, right? Now, that would mean God imagining, telling the Israelites that once you are out, you'll be able to reminisce and say, that is the God who brought us out. 
it's interesting that the choice here is to keep it in a present tense uh, verb. Now, you know, what does tense, present tense mean to the, in biblical Hebrew? We're not quite sure. It could also be a present tense verb can be adjectival. The one who brings out, the bringer out, where it's not an, an, an active present tense verb, but a describer of the God. Uh, any other questions or comments on this verse? We'll look at the Rashi. Oh, is Rashi quiet in this verse? Rashi's quiet in this verse. I, I just want to say that he, um, it, if he would have let it be with this sub, sivlot, wherever we were, with this sivlot mitzrayim, it seems pretty clear for this next sentence that uh, it just is worded that that um, it's definitely the sivlot that are that we're mitachat sivlot. Yeah, we had mitachat in both places, right? But yes, hamotzi et chem mitachat sivlot mitzrayim. It doesn't make sense to say I am the one who brings you out of the suffering that they suffered. Right? Uh, Joel, can you get the microphone to Joel? And then uh, Rick, I see your hand. Or did it go down? No, it's uh, Stevie. I see your hand. So my addition says that it, it was, there is addition that say old in the previous Rashi in some of the Torah, and based on that old. Yosef Hallel, you know who that is? No. He says that Rashi is saying that it means that not only will he um, release us from the actual labor, but he will free them from the yoke of the burden of feeling that they are duty bound to do the bidding of the Egyptians, even at times when they are not actually engaged in hard labor. That's really interesting because it plays with what all Malchut Shamaya means, right? So. We, we have the phrase Ol all over in rabbinic literature that one of the things that we're supposed to accept on our shoulders is the yoke of God's kingdom. And the yoke of God's kingdom is not, it's not a specific task. It's a psychological, emotional, spiritual acceptance that we are duty bound, right? So by adding an Ol, whoever this Yosef Halel is saying is that it's right, you, you, you can take the, the slave out of Egypt, but it's hard to take the Egypt out of the slave. So I'm going to redeem you also by taking the Egypt out of the slave. Very nice. I love that. I don't know if that's what Rashi meant, but I like that. I like the Midrash on the Rashi. Marshall? And then Stevie. It's interesting to me that the JPS translation of Hamotzi puts it into the past tense. Mm. Uh, your God who freed you from the labors of the Egyptians. And I'm trying to figure out why, because the statement, the verse starts, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I, I, Adonai, and how do you know then? I am the one who has already, who has, is, continues to free you. I am, I have freed you yeah. by my actions. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 over and over again, it's such a delicious conundrum, how to translate anything, even the word as simple as hamotzi. This is what Everett Fox does. He's very literal with the, with the tenses. I will take you for me as a people, and I will be for you as a God, and you shall know that I am yud Hey vav Hey your God, who brings you out. He maintains the present, who brings you out from beneath the burdens of Egypt. It's like uh, I, every time I do a, a bar bat mitzvah run-through, uh, and I tell the student that when you get to the end of the Aliyah, Baruch Hashem Noten HaTorah, and you do a little, if you don't know this, when you take an Aliyah, you're supposed to lift the Torah a little bit on Noten HaTorah, blessed are you God, who gives the Torah. It's not Natan HaTorah, not who gave the Torah. And what I say to them, because it's sort of true, is that the notion is that the blessing is not 
only reminiscing about Sinai, but having us relive Sinai now. We bless you, God, who right now is giving the Torah. So if God is giving it, we're taking it. We show that we're taking it by lifting it, right? Now, in that blessing, notena Torah is also more can also be understood as an adjective, not a verb. Bless you, God, who the, the giver of Torah. The giver of Torah, even in colloquial English, can refer to something that happened already, right? You know, you know the, the um, I'm trying to think of, a, of an obvious example, right? The, I bless my father, you know, the, 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 the giver of my life, right? Well, or my parents, they, they, they gave it to me back then, but I can still use that moniker. So it can, it can be adjectival, but if you read it as a verb, it's, I bless you, God, who is giving Torah right now. Um, okay, uh, Stevie and then Matt, and then we'll probably end. Steve, you still there? There, sorry. I, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting that Rashi was quick to like bring up past promises, you know, a verse ago is like not doing that here because these all of these statements are statements that appear in like they're they're uh I don't want to say references, but like uh these are these are promises that are not unique to this specific circumstance that Right, Vaiti Lachem Elohim is right, or I guess it's in the singular, but right, like with Jacob's ladder, you you have something similar to that, and um, and both that and Viratem are right. Well, after the instructions to build the tabernacle in Tetzava, right, you have that like, and 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 then I'll be your God, and you'll know that I'm your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Um, the it's so j just the, like these are. Uh, maybe we should do a, a thorough study of, of every promise um, from God, but that these are, there's some kind of a progression and um, that uh, I'm just surprised Rashi doesn't like cite a bunch of other examples. Yeah. Uh, endless and wonderful um, questionings from Rashi's silences, right? Like why, why he doesn't do what he does, but he, why he, why he doesn't do what he doesn't do is always interesting to theorize. Uh, Matt, you get the final word. No, I'll pass. pass. Um, did you mention Jody before? Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Depending on how long you all have been a part of this class, you may or may not remember that one of our regular participants for many years was Jody Myers, oh. who passed away this week uh, from a terrible brain tumor. Um, the funeral, I think, is happening like now, I think. In, uh, I was at the funeral just now, so it's over. Over. Yes, I was at the funeral. That's why I came to class late. Um, and uh, it was very moving, as one would expect. Her children <laughs> spoke. And um, Adam Rubin also spoke. He had been her student, it turns out, um, when she was at... Uh, teaching at uh, Cal State Northridge. She was head of Jewish studies at Cal State Northridge. So it had been a good number of years since she was active in this class, but in the early years that I was here, she was here regularly and a wonderful contributor. And she, as I mentioned at our board meeting last night, she was a wonderful contributor to the whole community. For many years, she ran the um, one of the Shabbat Yiladim uh, Tfilot over in the Gansberg building in Shabbat morning. And when we moved here, in 2009, my daughter Noah was in third grade, and Joseph Rosenbaum, Nina, Nina and Jason, the son, was in third grade. And at the time, 
uh, Jody was running the third and fourth grade Shabbat morning little tefillah, and she got them starting to read Torah um, in third grade, like a verse at a time. And that's where the, both of those kids who are now adults, uh, Noah and Noah and uh, Joseph, are really dedicated to Torah reading. And it they have parents who know how to do it, but it began really with Jody. So it's a very sad loss for her family and for all of us. And thank you, Matt, for reminding me. I think me she started the meditation minion. He's a chrab baruch. Okay, everyone, have a good day. Have a good day, everybody. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.